This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. The title of the talk is Living in the Greater Mandala. And that's the theme of this year's International Urban Retreat. So I looked up a website to see what it said about this urban retreat. And it said, I thought this was quite good, so I thought I might as well just copy it and read it to you. It says, the theme of this year's retreat is living in the greater mandala. Our lives can be so full and busy. What we're engaged in may be good and helpful, but it's so easy to become driven then anxious, and then impatient and humorless. Our activities can easily become another ego project, part of the way our mind fabricates a too rigid and narrow sense of self. Is it possible to live an active life without the busy ego? How can we remain proactive without becoming compulsive? Sangharachita's teaching of the Great Mandala is about learning to live from a more expansive, beautiful and non-utilitarian perspective. During this international urban retreat, we'll take a fresh look at this teaching and at the kinds of Dharma practices and attitudes that can help us live more fully in the greater mandala. Sounds good, I thought. So, as Dharma Modini said, this is the launch talk. So, I'm delighted to be doing this in the Adelaide Tree Ratna group. Adelaide is one of the four centres in Australia which has signed up to participate. So hopefully many of you, if not all of you, will be participating in the urban retreat when it comes along. And I believe Adelaide was one of the very first centres to sign up. So I thought it would be quite a good place to give the launch talk. The idea was that I would give it somewhere and it would be recorded. And this actually seems like a great place to do that. So thank you for having me. A 14th century Persian poet called Hafiz says, I caught the happy virus last night when I was out singing beneath the stars. It is remarkably contagious. Kiss me. (laughs) I'll read that again. I caught the happy virus last night when I was out singing beneath the stars. It is remarkably contagious. Kiss me. I'll come back to that, so just hold that in mind. So Living in the Great Mandala is a quote, the title of a chapter from this book, Wisdom Beyond Words, which was published in the early 90s. And it's a study of various sutras from the Pragna Paramita, corpus of texts. So that's a series of texts, early Mahayana texts. Pragna Paramita means the perfection of wisdom. So the topic of these sutras, and therefore the topic of this book, and the topic of these talks, as they were, was exploring wisdom from a very particular angle. And the transcripts of seminars. So this particular seminar is a seminar on the Ratnaguna Samchayagatha. It's a bit of a mouthful. The Ratnaguna Samchayagatha, which is a very early sutra from this particular series of sutras. So this is a seminar which Sangharakshita gave to some order members and people, I think, that were training for ordination in 1976. So Sangharakshita had just returned from India. Some of you probably don't know this, but he had been living in India for about 20 years and he'd gone back to Europe, to the UK, and had spent a couple of years there in the mid-70s, travelling around different Buddhist groups and organisations. And he decided for various reasons that he could see that Britain was, as it were, ready for Buddhism. Buddhism was coming to the West, it was going to America, it was coming to the UK, it was coming to Europe. I've no idea exactly what was happening in this part of the world, in the Southern Hemisphere. But certainly there was a kind of boom, as it were, of Eastern religions in general coming into Europe and the States at that time. So he could see that there was interest and that there was a readiness, a ripeness 
But he also felt that there was something lacking and that what he wanted to do was form a new Buddhist organisation, a new Buddhist movement, the centre of which would be people practising. So he talked about seeing that there was what he called armchair Buddhism in Britain. So people who nominally were Buddhist, but in many ways didn't practise their Buddhism in every aspect of their life. It's a little bit like either a hobby or something that they did almost in the way you might go to church or mass on a Sunday morning. And he felt there was a very strong need to form a new community of practitioners who would just dedicate their whole lives to their Buddhist path. So he returned to India to settle his affairs there and went back to the UK and set up what was known as the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order. And that was formed in 1967. And the first members of the order were ordained in 1968. So less than 50 years ago. Not a very long time in the history of Buddhism. This seminar was given in 1976, so the order was still very young and very new. And because Sangharachita did all of his teaching at that time, either through giving series of lectures or seminars where he would invite people to come and study a text, and those were lovingly recorded on what some of you will recall, reel-to-reel tape recorders. And those were held by Dhamma Chakra tapes, as it was known at the time. And those were later transcribed and made into books or made available online as talks and seminars. And I think it's quite interesting to think that that's where this came from. Because it was a very early moment in a live tradition. So what Sangharakshita was teaching at that time, it's interesting to look back. You can see the seeds in many of those early seminars and talks of things that have blossomed into the order as years have gone on. But you also get a sense that there was something almost corrective about them. That he would sometimes focus in one way of practice and then sometimes focus in a different way of practice. And it would almost seem, looked at overall, a bit contradictory. But you get the sense of a tradition just coming alive and people working in a particular way. And then Bhante thinks, I'll call him Bhante, which just means teacher. It's an affectionate term. So Bhante would think, oh, I think we need to do more meditation. So then he'd talk about meditation or he'd think we needed to do a bit more work. So then he'd talk about a bit more work. So you get a sense of something changing as the tradition moves on. And 1976 was a building phase. It was a building phase of the movement, both literally and metaphorically. We were building things up, communities were forming, people were getting ordained. I can't remember how many order members there were in 76. It was probably less than 100, I would think. There's now almost 2,000. So things move along and change. And there was also, it was a building phase in terms of buildings. The centre in East London, which became known as the LBC or the London Buddhist Centre, had just been got hold of, I think, at that time. It was still an old fire station. There was work being done there. There was work being done near Croydon. There were various places that were just trying to build, literally brick by brick, build our Buddhist centres. So I'm just going to read you from the editor's preface of this, which I think is quite interesting as background and context to this particular teaching. The seminar on the Ratnaguna Samchaya Gatha took place in 1976. According to Dhammachari Sabuti, the effect of this seminar was a general spirit of expansive inspiration and a loosening of nose-to-the-grindstone Protestant values that wreaked havoc with work schedules and necessitated some radical rethinking of the methods being employed to push projects within the FWBO forward. So you get the impression that people were really working and possibly not in the kindest or most creative of ways. There's a bit of a we need to get this job done, and quite a kind of push to do that. And then it says, all of a sudden it seemed that people could not even be persuaded to take the rubbish out without feeling personally inspired to do so. <laughs> As it turned out, 
the development of the movement did not grind to a standstill as a result of this reassertion of the primacy of spiritual values over temporal objectives. And then it goes on to say what else was kind of happening at that time. But I think that's just quite an interesting context. It will make sense as I go in to explain what it actually means. So the Ratnaguna Samchayagatha was an early text which looks at wisdom, it looks at the perfection of wisdom. Pragna is wisdom. It's a Pali word which means Nya, J-N, well, little thing above it, A, means to know, knowledge, and Pra is an emphasis. So Pragna is a very emphatic sense of knowing. But it isn't just a merely intellectual knowing of something. It's a living experience of reality. It's a living experience of the conditioned nature of our being, no less than that. So it's a wisdom that goes beyond duality, and I will come back to that. The subject matter of this particular text is the career of a bodhisattva. It's looking at what is a bodhisattva and how would a bodhisattva behave. So a bodhisattva just means an enlightening being or an awakening being. Sattva is being, and bodhi is the same root as Buddha. So bodhi means awakening or enlightening. A bodhisattva is a being intent upon enlightenment or intent upon awakening. So there's a recognition that most of us, most of the time, are not as awake to the world around us as we could be. We're not as awake even to ourselves as we could be. The idea of awakening means to awaken to our fullest potential. But the Bodhisattva doesn't just work towards his or her own perfection or his or her own potential, but helps create the conditions for the potential of all beings to be awakened. So it's a beautiful, sublime ideal. It's sometimes translated as a being intent upon awakening for the sake of all. The motivation for practice for one who follows the Bodhisattva path is to create the conditions that all beings might fulfill their potential, that every being on the earth and beyond will be able to come to perfection within themselves, will be able to overcome anything that holds them back, will be able to awaken to their fullness. So a bodhisattva is trying to create conditions to alleviate suffering because the Buddha recognised that suffering is created by our own actions, by our own way of clinging to the self, that we create suffering by trying to make reality fit into our picture of how we would like it to be. And so the bodhisattva is trying to not only awaken to that reality for himself or herself, but help others to also see this truth that we cause our own suffering by our own unskillful actions. So the Ratnaguna Samchayagatha was one of the very first, earliest texts in Buddhism to talk about the Bodhisattva path, to talk about the Bodhisattva in a particular way. Until this point, the earlier texts, coming mainly from what's known as the Theravadan, the very early texts of Buddhism, used the term Bodhisattva only to refer to Shakyamuni Buddha in previous lives. So the idea of a bodhisattva was somebody preparing to become a Buddha. But it was used mainly in a kind of almost archetypal way. But in this text, we start to get a sense of how that can be a path for anyone. For anybody who wants to follow that path. It's a sublime path. It's a beautiful path. It's an ideal path. But it's a path that can be practiced and picked up. And many of the early talks and seminars that Sangharakshita gave actually deal with this topic, the Bodhisattva ideal. This ideal of gaining enlightenment or striving towards awakening to help alleviate suffering in the world. So it's kind of there in the very bones of Triratna, this ideal. It's the backbone of most of our teachings. 
And there's lots, if you're interested in this and it's something that you're not particularly familiar with, there's a book called The Bodhisattva Ideal, which is transcripts and talks given by Sangrachta and seminars, which go into this topic in a lot more detail than I can possibly offer in this talk. As a path, it's a path of altruism. It's a path of compassion. So it's interesting that in a text on the perfection of wisdom, in a sense the topic is compassion. They're not separate. They're not apart. Wisdom is compassion. Compassion is wisdom. Most of the talk that I'm going to give follows the talk in this book, which is available. It's actually quite an amazing read, this book. I love it. It's one of my favourite books of Sangharakshita's. So I'm going to start by just saying a little bit about pragna or wisdom. Pragna is often translated just as wisdom. But in this seminar, Bhante Sangharakshita follows a translation by a German academic called Dr. Gunther, who translates pragna as analytical, appreciative understanding. Analytical, appreciative understanding. So it's a knowledge that's an understanding. It's not an alienated or a cold knowledge. It's not on the level of thought. And in fact, I think thought can often get in the way of knowledge. We often overthink things. We tell ourselves all sorts of stories about things and then make the big mistake of believing that the stories are true. And then we base whole lives upon these stories. For example, this is a kind of silly example, but I remember many, many years ago I was given a talk at the London Buddhist Centre. I can't remember what it was on, but anyway, I was given this talk. I was young, I was enthusiastic, and there was an order member sitting in the front row, and he was glowering at me. You know, he was really kind of scowling as I was giving the talk. You know, had a little dialogue in my mind going, oh God, he's hating this talk. And I had built a whole story about why he hated it and what it was I'd said that he didn't like. And it tapped into a whole history of other things that had gone on around the LBC at the time. It was completely convincing. So the next day I happened to bump into him in the street and he said to me, great talk. And I thought, oh, okay. So I said, oh, I thought you'd hated it because you were scowling at me. He said, no, there was a light behind you. I couldn't see you. And for me, it was quite a good example of how my little story had just become so absolutely convincing that if I hadn't had that conversation with him, I'd probably still think 30-odd years later that, I probably wouldn't give it a lot of thought, but if I ever did, that he'd absolutely hated that talk. So sometimes it's important to check things out. And that's a trivial example. But we do exactly the same thing were all sorts of other, much more important things that we think about. There's a term in Buddhism which is papancha, and it's not just thought, but it's kind of convoluted thought. It's thought upon thought. In Spanish, there's a saying which is, sometimes they say to people, oh, don't make a movie out of it, you know? So it's like you get a wee story in your head, and then you've, you know, you've got the protagonists and the antagonists and the extras, and they're all coming together to make this movie, which is completely based on my thought process and has very little to do with anything real. So in this book, in this talk, Bhante Sangharakshita says, if we really want to know wisdom, if we want to know reality, if we want to be at one with reality, we need to find ways to let go of our convoluted thinking. So he suggests some ways we can work on that. He suggests silence. And it's very interesting on retreats. I'm sure many of you have been in retreats where there have been silence. Maybe a day, maybe a bit longer, maybe a week. And in the silence you notice the little stories that you're telling yourself. Because you've got nobody to check them out with. Nobody to kind of do a, hey, did you see what happened there? So it just all happens in your own mind. And you start to see very quickly how the mind just plays such tricks and really believes itself. And if you are in silence for a while, you can really start to kind of go underneath that and just start to kind of get a bit of a sense of spaciousness around it and even maybe humour. 
you start kind of catching the things that you're telling yourself and just let them go. And it's a lovely way of doing that sometimes, to be in silence and just to catch that. The first silent retreat I ever did, I spent the entire time singing songs in my head. And I would notice how I felt by the song that I found myself singing. So if I was singing a happy song, I would know that I was feeling quite happy, but sometimes I would be singing a bit heavy metal or something, and I think maybe my mental state's not quite as refined today as it could be. So silence really allows us to kind of get a bit of a sense. And of course, meditation itself is a wonderful way of just coming into that silent, serene space within ourselves and noticing how sometimes it's neither silent nor serene, but that we can have whole stories kind of playing themselves out. Focusing on that, catching our thought processes, even just asking ourselves, where did that thought come from? Is it real? Is it true? Just letting it go, letting it move on. This is connected also with another translation, another Sanskrit word that we hear sometimes used as wisdom, which is vidya. Nvidya is the opposite of avidya, which is ignorance. So vidya is like the opposite of ignorance. So in that sense, it's knowledge or wisdom. But again, it's sometimes translated as aesthetic appreciation. So it's not got the analytical sense that prajna does, but it's still got that sense of aesthetic appreciation. So there's an example given in this book, which is often quoted, it's quite a good one, of Sangrachta, he's talking to somebody, and I think it's in the Pali friend, if I remember correctly, and they're looking at a tree, and Sangrachta says, oh, look at that, what a beautiful tree, you know, and he's looking at the branches and the colour of the trunk and the texture, it doesn't say all that, this is me taking it a bit further, the texture of the bark, etc., etc., and the friend says to him, yeah, there's probably enough firewood there for however many, a utilitarian view of what that tree could offer. So Sanger actually uses this to contrast, on the one hand, a utilitarian approach, and on the other hand, a more aesthetic, appreciative approach. Now, of course, there are going to be times when we're going to need to use that tree for fuel, It's not that we never want a practical approach to life. We live in the world. We need to be practical. But the idea of living in the greater mandala is to try to hold those practical needs within a much bigger, expansive sense of this aesthetic appreciation. So in this example, or in any example, where we're coming towards something, or even another person, with this aesthetic appreciation, we're seeing them as they are, and notice how we would like them to be. Not seeing them through the filters of our own needs or desires, but actually an open-hearted approach where we're able to come into connectedness with the tree, with the object, with the other person, without the constant filter of ego, looking at that and seeing what we can gain from it. I mean, that sounds a bit caricatured, and I'm sure none of us are standing there going, hmm looking at a person and thinking, what can I gain from this person? But it is, generally speaking, our approach to life. We see other as separate from ourselves. And to that extent, if we've separated into subject me, object you, there's already a utilitarian approach involved in that. So in the idea of living in a wider sense in a greater mandala is to try and get away from that utilitarian approach to life, to the world. Utility is based on self. That's the basis of it. And according to the Buddha, it's a false sense of self in which we're basing that utilitarian approach. And our life can become so very, very dry when that's the way we're approaching things. There's a lovely talk I'd recommend by a Dharmacharini, a woman called Vajradarshini, and the talk's called We Have a Huge Barrel of Wine But No Cups, which is a quote from Rumi. And it's a lovely talk exactly about the difference between an aesthetic approach to life and a utilitarian approach. And she's got a friend who does it where it's a great double act. You know, she asks a friend questions, and I really recommend it. It's quite an entertaining talk. And she also makes some really lovely points. Anyway, in that talk, she says, we must take delight in life. We must relish and enjoy every moment. 
That's what this teaching of the greater mandala is saying. And we often do all the practical things first. And then if there's any time left over, we'll use that for something more aesthetically enjoyable. And by aesthetic, I don't necessarily mean the high arts. But much more this approach to life where we're able to take it in in a very gentle, spacious way and really not be seeing it through this filter. So in this teaching, Sangrachta says, the Bodhisattva, quite unpurposefully, rearranges the whole universe and turns it into a gigantic mandala. So what he's saying here is that the approach of this being intent upon alleviating suffering for all beings actually does it by just rearranging everything into this beautiful aesthetic mandala. So what is a mandala, you might be asking? Well, a mandala is technically a kind of geometric structure, which you find, interestingly, in many, many cultures. Jung talks a lot about mandalas. I don't know if any of you have read much Carl Jung. He talks about how many of his patients who are going through perhaps very large experiences in life in which they're integrating different aspects of themselves will dream of mandalas, even if they've never heard the term and they've never come across them. They'll dream of these geometric shapes. I'm going to read you from the book, actually, a lovely definition of a mandala. What is a mandala? Putting aside the more conventional descriptions, here's a short definition by a Tibetan teacher. To make a mandala is to take any prominent aspect of reality and surround it with beauty. So it's a very simple description. To take any prominent aspect of reality and surround it with beauty. Why you would select one particular aspect of reality over another will be a matter not of attraction as a form of craving, but a spiritual affinity. So what you sometimes see in mandalas is whatever's in the centre is what gives shape to everything else. So there's a very famous mandala that you might well have come across or will come across, which is of five Buddha figures. And there's a particular Buddha in the centre, and then there's other Buddha figures of different colours at the different cardinal points of the compass. So there's one in the north, one in the south, one in the east, and one in the west. The one in the centre is awakening, enlightening. It's the enlightened mind. But that enlightened mind is divided into different aspects. And those aspects give beauty and shape and form. It's not just a thing in Buddhism, as I say. You actually get it in all sorts of other mythologies. I don't know if any of you have come across Joseph Campbell's teaching. Well, he did a whole series of things where he looks at different mythologies from different peoples, as it were, around the world. And he finds motifs that you find in common. Fascinating, actually. And one of the motifs that you find across many, many cultures is this idea of a mandala, where you have something in the centre and then other things arranged around it, often in geometrical kind of shape. But what this teaching is saying is that our whole life can be like that. It's like an attitude to life of taking what's really important to us, putting that at the centre of our life, and then everything else in our life will be beautifully rearranged. And it sounds very easy, doesn't it? I mean, I think it sometimes takes a bit more work than that to end up with something that's harmonious and beautiful and in which there's no conflict. So it's a kind of model of the way that we might approach our life. This idea of aesthetic appreciation is a kind of love of life on its own terms. A love of life without trying to shape it into something that suits me or pushing away what doesn't suit me. Just an openness to life as it arises and passes. But this does not mean passivity. So it doesn't mean that we just lie back and go with the flow and let everything happen. It also doesn't mean that we see things in the world that we think need to be changed, but we think, ah, you know, I'm living in a mandala of aesthetic appreciation. <laughs> Who cares if the climate's changing, you know? Does it matter if there are refugees everywhere? 
I'm living in a mandala of aesthetic appreciation. That is not the Bodhisattva's attitude. The Bodhisattva takes into account everything that's happening and is trying to have a sense of spaciousness within that. Sangha actually says somewhere, the Bodhisattva is the greatest worker on earth, but it's action in serenity. And that's such a hard thing to find. And, you know, I mentioned a few things like climate change, war, refugees, etc. How hard it is to remain serene when faced with those kind of world issues. Or even just faced with the suffering of a good friend. Or faced with my own suffering. How hard it is to remain serene. But that's what this attitude saying. Not serene in the sense of cold or alienated. But serene in the sense of being able to remain centred. Remain loving in the face of all around us. Just very briefly, there's a figure called Guntara. Some of you will be familiar with She's a female figure, a female bodhisattva figure, an archetypal figure. And she sits with one leg in meditation and one leg stepping into the world. And she has one hand held up in a gesture of fearlessness and one hand held down in a gesture of generosity. And within that figure, there's such extraordinary symbolism. And the symbolism is saying, in meditation, I don't forget the world. I'm ready to step into the world. But I don't step into the world in a way that overwhelms me because I come from that serenity that I find in my meditation. So that beautiful marriage or that beautiful way of having both serenity and action and the sense of fearlessness, because the world needs fearlessness. Fear is endemic in the 21st century. But it's also generosity. It's a generous response to whatever I see around me. So all of that, in a sense, is held within this idea of the greater mandala, of a mandala of aesthetic appreciation. There's serenity, there's action, there's fearlessness, and there's generosity. And there's no over-identification with any one of those aspects, but a totality, a gesto of all of those things. Years ago, in the 80s sometime, I was in a, a seminar with Sangraksh. It wasn't in this text. It was in a completely different text. But he started to talk about looking at our lives as a personal mandala and saying, what do we have in the centre of our lives? How are we balancing the aspects of our life? And I actually found it a really, really helpful way of thinking about my own practice. He actually said it to me and I was talking to him. Actually, I was asking him why I wasn't ordained yet. Because I thought I'd been around for about ten months or something. But, (laughs) you know, I was young and enthusiastic. And he was explaining to me that he perceived in me a lack of integration. And he used this term of a mandala and said, sometimes when people have a very complex mandala it needs something very deep in the centre to hold it and he obviously felt I had a complex mandala which is true I'm one of those people that you know can go off in a hundred directions and I'm interested in everything and he felt I really needed something very strong at the centre that could hold that so I was very grateful for that and I actually found it a helpful way of thinking about life and also about all those other things being harmonious because they're held with something in the centre that gives it meaning. So, no conflict in the greater mandala. How beautiful is that? Because so often we are in conflict, even with ourselves, let alone with anybody else. So the idea of the greater mandala is to be able to come into relationship without conflict, with harmony. Sangrachta also talks about extremes where we can over-identify with either the practical and become very overly focused and dry. But on the other hand, there's another extreme, which is the vague, the kind of space cadet, you know, the completely way out there. You know, some of us tend to one or the other. Some of us have the talent to be both. You know, what Sanger actually saying is, in a way, we need to be bigger than either of those. We need to find a way of bringing that together. And he suggests that the antidote to both of those is spontaneous, light-hearted play. To try and relate to life as play. And again, this is an attribute of the Bodhisattva, of this being who's seeking enlightenment to alleviate all suffering. 
It's quite interesting that you're trying to alleviate suffering, but it's light-hearted, light-heartedness, a sense of play in our practice so we don't get too dry, but also keeping us anchored. Rumi, he says, respond to every call that excites your spirit. Respond to every call that excites your spirit. By spirit here, I mean our spiritual quest. I don't know what Rumi meant, but I'm taking it to mean a spiritual quest. So respond to what really inspires us and fascinates us. It's fantastic to find things that fascinate. Fascination will keep us alive. It will keep us involved. It will keep us engaged. So I think it's really important to find fascination. Some of you, I believe, are quite early in your path to Buddhist practice. Some of you have been practicing for a long time. It doesn't matter. Fascination is important. Whether it's just the fascination to sit down in the cushion and be fascinated about what's going to happen in your next meditation, or whether it's the fascination of reading a Dharma text and finding something that really resonates, that you think, I've known this forever, but I've had no words to express it. Whether it's a fascination of getting to know a new friend who's really interested in you and really wants to help you with your growth, really wants to see that you're okay. Keeping fascinated in each other, I think, really keeps our practice alive. And that is living in the greater mandala. To find the mystery at the heart of life. Yeats, the Irish poet, said... Something like, I couldn't actually find this direct quote, but it's something like the health of a nation can be seen by the health of its mythology. So I think you could think of that as the health of a movement might well be noted in the health of its mythology. And by mythology, what I mean is a sense of magic and myth and ritual and wonder and awe. And if we can keep that within our movement, within our life, then it will keep something alive. And Sangash has given us a myth or a symbol that we can relate to, which is a particular figure known as the thousand-armed Avalokiteshvara. And Avalokiteshvara is the most archetypal of the archetypal bodhisattvas because he represents compassion, which is the archetypal quality of the bodhisattvas. This figure of Avalokiteshvara, some of you might have seen, they're kind of weird if you haven't come across them before, is a standing figure with a thousand arms. And he has his hands at his heart with a jewel in the centre. And that jewel represents the human potential, or the more than human potential that every one of us has. So at the very heart of everything is our individual practice, fulfilling our own potential. And the body of this figure of Avalokiteshvara is like our order, our movement, our community, which is the body that holds and gives context to that practice. But then from that body spring a thousand arms, because the world needs at least a thousand. A thousand is a symbolic number for a lot. Millions of arms reaching out into the world that come from that body and from that practice at the heart of it. The hand at the heart that's got a jewel is also a symbol for the jewel within the lotus. So the hands are like a lotus that's opening and within that lotus is a beautiful, shiny, gorgeous jewel. And that is a symbol for human potential. The lotus grows in the mud and yet wherever it starts it grows to be beautiful and it grows outside of the mud. It rises from the mud. More mud, bigger, beautiful lotus. So wherever we start, nowhere is too muddy. All of us have that potential to grow. Such a beautiful image. And then that jewel that's at the heart is reflected in the jewels of every other lotus, of every other being as they open. So these are all ways of just trying to keep a sense of symbolism, a sense of where our practice isn't just to sit down and count the breath. We need to sit down and follow the breath because that helps us to become more centred, helps us to develop that beautiful quality of mindfulness. But it's not an end in itself. That mindfulness can then be applied to how we relate to people, how we relate to the environment, how we relate to each other, how we relate to ourselves. So it's a way of keeping our practice and our life not just in the material plane, 
but to stay awake to a sense of something more, something beyond that. And I think we've been very lucky in Sri Ratna in this way, because it's been there from the start. Sangharakshita has always talked about the need to keep a visionary approach to life alive. He's been described as a dreamer and a visionary, as well as a scholar, albeit a self-taught scholar. And imagination has played a great part in the formation of our movement. In the early days of my own involvement in Sri Ratna, in the late 70s, early 80s, we did loads of myth weekends and an order member in London called Attila, who's still living in London, he used to do these amazing weekends looking at all sorts of different mythological approaches and symbolism. And Joseph Campbell was actually doing a series on the TV at that time. Him and Bill Moyers, they did this whole series, and it was looking at different mythic motifs. We used to record it in a VCR and then watch it together, a whole group of us, and then we'd talk about it and kind of enact it. And it was very, very alive. People talked about Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung and myth and symbol and imagination. And I wonder if we've lost that a wee bit in Sri Ratna. I wonder if we've sometimes lost a little bit of that kind of openness to something. So symbol, myth, poetry will help us to enter a world of imagination. And we need to each of us find our own way to do that. It will be different for you than for me or for somebody else. Because a symbol isn't something you can say, well, this means this, 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 and this. Well, you can do that, but it works also on a different level. It speaks to us or it doesn't speak to us. And a looking at the detail of a symbol can help open it for us, but it isn't the same as just being touched by it. So what speaks to you? Is it nature? Is it art? Is it poetry? Is it music? Is it film? Is it different visual images? Is it going to see an exhibition? Or is it something completely different? One of the things that I find completely opens my heart and mind to the awe and wonder of the universe is watching things like Brian Cox as wonders of the universe or wonders of the solar system. That, for me, just I just end up feeling so expansive when I watch that kind of thing. Anyway, find it. Find what speaks for you. Find what helps you to enter that greater mandala, what helps you to hold your life with a sense of mystery. Keats in Endymion said, A thing of beauty is a joy forever. Its loveliness increases. It will never pass into nothingness, but still will keep a bower quiet for us and a sleep full of sweet dreams. So find what's beautiful for you. Sometimes people look at something and they say, my goodness, this is so beautiful. And you look at it and think, really? Okay. You know, so you have to find what works for you yourself. I caught the happy virus last night when I was out singing beneath the stars. It is remarkably contagious. Kiss me. So go and sing beneath the stars. You've got wonderful skies here. Sing beneath them. But the fact that it's contagious, the kiss, of course, we'll take as metaphoric. Share it. You know, spread the love. When you find something that really makes your heart sing, share that. And also, help each other to live in that sense of a greater mandala. We can do that as a community. We can help each other. When we see that our friends are struggling maybe and they're caught in things that are small and I don't mean small in a derogatory sense either. I don't mean that they're not important because we all do get caught in things and they are important and they're painful sometimes. But when we see our friends maybe struggling with doubt, try and help them to remember that there is a sense of spaciousness there. Hafiz again, the Persian poet I opened with said, I wish I could show you when you are lonely or in darkness, the astonishing light of your own being. So help each other to see the light in each other. Love each other. That's what I think the message is, really, the greater mandala. Love each other. Pragna and wisdom is not cold. It's not alienated. So let me read you another quote from this text, which is about wisdom. The enlightenment of the Buddha was not a cold, detached knowledge. He saw with warmth, he saw with feeling, 
He saw everything as beautiful. The Buddha saw everything as pure beauty because he saw everything with compassion. Just as, conversely, when you hate someone, they naturally appear as ugly. When from metta, you see things as beautiful, you will experience joy and delight. And from that joy and delight will flow spontaneity, freedom, creativity and energy. This flow from metta to joy to freedom and energy is the constant experience of the Bodhisattva. The Bodhisattva's wisdom, in the fullest sense, includes metta. In a sense, we could even say that metta is prajna. So metta, loving kindness, a desire to really open up, to go beyond our likes and dislikes, not to lose our discriminating factor or our critical factor, but to go beyond that and still love. And living in the greater mandala is living from love. It's realizing and recognizing that we're not separate from each other. The Buddha taught that all phenomena arise in dependence upon other phenomena, that everything arises in dependence, that there is nothing which is inherently separate. There is nothing which has separate identity. The Buddha taught that what we think of as a self and a separate self is empty. So not empty in the sense that it doesn't exist. Of course we exist. If somebody comes and slaps me in the face, I'll feel it. I'll probably work hard not to slap them back. But I will feel it. And if I did slap them back, they would feel it. In that sense, we exist. In a purely physical sense, we exist. But we don't exist in the sense that we think we exist. We think we exist completely separately. The Buddha said, no, nothing is completely separate. That everything arises and passes. So how do we understand that? Well, we understand that within this great aesthetic appreciation it's the same thing, it's, it's coming into relationship, again, not through a sense of utilitarian desire or need or utilitarian ego-based way of approaching the world, but an actual coming into dance with all beings, really, when we recognise that in this flow of arising and passing, there is nothing which is inherently separate. So this is the Bodhisattva path. It allows us to go beyond that sense of separation. It allows us to transform ourselves and our world. We recognize that ourself and our world are not separate, that we condition our world and we are conditioned by it, that there's a relationship. The poet Robert Haas says that writers have different ways of relating to the world in their writing that they bring the world into being in different ways. And two of these ways I love, actually. One of them, he says, we dream the world into being. And he also says we transform the world. I think the Bodhisattva dreams the world into being in the sense of creating this beautiful living mandala. So the Bodhisattva creates a world of harmony and of beauty. But that's created through love. And that love is also what transforms the world. We transform the world through metta and through wisdom. And through holding lightly to the things that we need to do. So we don't stop doing the things that we need to do, but we kind of don't take ourselves quite so seriously. I often think there's a very strong and deep spiritual practice in the phrase, get over yourself. <laughs> so we let go preconceived notions. We hold lightly to things. We see them as beautiful rather than as useful. In the words of the Heart Sutra, which some of you will know, we hold to nothing whatever. We let go of wanting the world to become what we would like it to be. It's a fool's game. We might occasionally get lucky, and there's a coincidence between what we would like and what happens. Sometimes we don't. We let go of our utilitarian way of approaching the world, of approaching our life, of approaching ourselves. 
And by doing that, we can live in a greater mandala of aesthetic appreciation. We can live in a mandala of love, of spaciousness, a mandala made of blue sky and ocean. And through the rest of the urban retreat, different order members will be exploring this idea of living within the greater mandala, focusing it on certain specific ways, like friendship, how we live in society. So what I've tried to do this evening is just give a much more general picture of what living in a greater mandala might feel like without going into any specific detail about how we might play that out. I've wanted to give a bigger picture. I've wanted to give a picture of spaciousness. So I started with a 14th century Persian poet and I'd like to end with a contemporary Scottish poet. Kenneth White, who some of you might know. This is one of my totally favourite poems. It speaks to me of serenity, of space, of openness, of expansion. It speaks to me of living in the greater mandala. It speaks to me of holding to nothing whatever. It speaks to me of letting go, of letting be, of letting the world arise and pass. It's called A High Blue Day on Scalpy. This is the summit of contemplation and no art can touch it. Blue, so blue. The far out archipelago and the sea shimmering, shimmering. No art can touch it. The mind can only try to become attuned to it. To become quiet and space itself out, to become open and still, unworlded, knowing itself in the diamond country, in the ultimate unlettered light. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 